Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Hello and welcome to the Autosport Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Kalanorkas. Today is a special episode because we're also recording a joint episode for our Race of My Life podcast series. As it's the week between the two Formula One races in Austria, the opening rounds of the 2020 season, we're going to start with a dedicated discussion about the Austrian Grand Prix and the Red Bull Ring. With me, two guests. My first is Autosports Plus editor, James Newbold. Welcome back to the podcast, James. How are you this morning? Very good, thank you. Um, yeah, looking forward to chatting about the Red Bull Ring. It's one of the first circuits that I visited outside the UK. It's a brilliant one to visit. Everybody should put it on their bucket list. And if they like Red Bull, then that's a bonus because you're going to struggle to get any Diet Coke there. Absolutely, I agree with that. It's, I, I honestly think it's probably the most beautiful track I've ever been to. It's, it's absolutely astonishing. So yeah, I definitely second that, James. And I know another reason why you're very excited to be on the podcast is because of who our second guest is. And I'm delighted to say it's ex-Jaguar, Red Bull and HRT Formula One driver, amongst many other things in your career, of course, Christian. It's Christian Clean. Welcome to the Autosport Podcast. How are you doing? Thank you very much. I'm very well. And uh, it's a pleasure for me to be on the Autosport uh, podcast. Looking forward to chat with you guys. Wonderful, wonderful. Now, I'm going to ruin it a little bit for the listeners by just describing what I can see in the background of uh, your Zoom uh, your Zoom background, Christian. It's lots of helmets and trophies. That's all. This is a wonderful setup. Where are you in your house? You're in a dedicated uh, celebration room for your career. No, it's actually my office here. And uh, nice. of course, I have uh, all the helmets and trophies with me. It's, uh, it's nice. It's good memory. And uh, it's just they get quite dusty, so it's a lot of uh, work to clean them up. <laughs> <laughs> keeping them going, keeping them going, I can imagine. Well, yeah, that's great. I mean, that is it's the perfect setting for it because as we're going to come to later on in the podcast, we are going to talk about your greatest moment, your greatest triumphs, maybe maybe a couple of bittersweet moments in there as well, I think. Uh, but first of all, as I said, as we're recording, I'm mean, just to let everybody know, the listeners, we are recording remotely in the run-up to the first race in Austria this weekend, although we won't be publishing uh, this episode until, as I said, the week between the two races. But as we've got Christian here, we thought we'd get your thoughts about the race, the Austrian Grand Prix, and racing in Austria. Now, it's as James and I said, it's an absolutely beautiful track, not a very long one, the Red Bull Ring. Um, what, what, do you, what do you make of it? What's it like for a driver? Uh, if you look at it on the track map, uh, it looks actually very simple. Not that many corners and uh, from the first look, a very easy layout. Uh, what's nice about the Austrian uh, uh, Grand Prix or the Red Bull Ring, I mean, the scenery around it is just beautiful. You know, in the middle of the mountains, uh, the forest, it's just nice. But in terms of track, uh, you know, it's a typical stop and go race track, which usually gives you good racing because there's a lot of overtaking possibilities. Uh, what we also have seen in the in the last years, and then you have the middle sector, last sector, which is quite fast and flowing. 
So to drive there, it's it's nice, but it's it's also tricky, you know, to hit that apex in that uh, turn one, three, four. It's it's not that easy, and uh, you have to keep up the momentum. Yeah? Absolutely. Now, James, I know you've got a certain affinity with the Red Bull Ring because I can remember commissioning and publishing a feature we ran on Autosport.com, which was uh, your favourite race you watched growing up, which was, was it the, the 2001 Austrian Grand Prix? Big fan of the Red Bull Ring or the A1 Ring as it was then. Indeed, yeah. The, that was one of the very first races that I actually watched. Um, it was uh, Juan Pablo Montoya was in the lead in the in the first stint uh, on wilting Michelin tyres, trying to keep Michael Schumacher behind him. And he basically took them both off the track, trying to, to defend. You had Jos Verstappen with the, a light fuel load in the arrows, um, was running second as a result of that. Um, and uh, David Coulthard managed to outfox Rubens Barrichello, um, with a, uh, a long first stint and right at the end you had the controversy of Barrichello letting Schumacher through on the final lap so a, a brilliant Grand Prix and I've, I've kind of always um, enjoyed watching races there the race that I mentioned earlier uh, attending was the European Le Mans series race in 2014 which Christian was a part of he was racing in the um, Moran Sport Morgan um, and he ended up finishing fifth and uh, the reason for that was because you had a teammate Christian who was rather too um, eager coming into the pit lane on a couple of occasions. I remember exactly. Yes, I remember that. And obviously, it's my it was my home Grand Prix. Uh, I didn't have any home Grand Prix in Formula One, unfortunately, because there was a, a ten year break at the at the Red Bull Ring uh, when I was in Formula One. But anyway, in the Le Mans series, I was racing there and hoping, obviously, for a podium or even for a race victory. And it was going actually very well. But uh, as it is in endurance racing, you'll have also other drivers. And I remember the teammate, he was, as you said, very eager coming into the pits, crossing the line twice. And uh, we, I think we got twice the drive-through for that and, and finishing P5s, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah, once is perhaps forgivable, twice maybe less so. But as you say, you, you were quite unfortunate, really, with your timing because you arrived in Formula 1 in 2004 just as, um, just as the Red Bull ring the A1 ring as it was then dropped off the calendar. So when did you actually get to race there for the first time? Did you get to race there much in the junior formula? Um, yes, I was racing there in uh, Formula BMW uh, for the first time, I guess. And then I was racing there also in 2003 uh, with the Formula 3 Euro Series. I managed to finish fifths, uh, also fifths, yeah, twice on, on fifth position. So I didn't have... Uh, 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 the best results at the, at the, at my home Grand Prix, but I always loved it. I mean, it's it's a great circuit to drive. Uh, it always gives you great races because there's a, a lot of overtaking possibilities, especially in the junior categories with all the slipstream uh, uh, you can have there. So it's it's great, yeah. And Christian, has it has it changed all that much over the years? You mentioned the ten years that it wasn't on the Formula One calendar, but when it returned in twenty fourteen, it was obviously been massively rebranded as the Red Bull Ring. A lot of investment from Red Bull going on around the track, but the actual circuit itself, the layout, wasn't wildly different to what it had been before. No, it was uh, was actually the same. Yeah, same layout. Uh, obviously, new asphalt uh, was much better, more uh, higher higher grip uh, asphalt there. Uh, the curbs were a little different, uh, but the layout itself was uh, was the same as it was in the the called uh, the A1 GP. Yeah? And those curbs have sort of they've played a bit of havoc over the years. I'm thinking Daniel Kvyat crashing in qualifying. I think what was that 2015, 2016 around then. Um, but yeah, what are they like? I mean, the, the races you've done with the, with those new curbs and how how has that affected things? Um, I mean, the, the curbs they have now, they're pretty flat and uh, because they use the track also a lot for, for motorcycles, so they have to find a, a compromise and obviously turn one, uh, but also up uh, turn two, there's a lot of runoff area to be able to make sure, you know, people don't run run off the exit of the, of the corners too much. Uh, they invented this, this uh, sausage curbs there, which I think they work uh, pretty good, especially for Formula cars. Uh, it really shows uh, the limit, let's say, of the racetrack. Not so much for, for GT cars, you can just run over it, so it's a bit more tricky there. But the way the, tra the track is now and the, the curbs they have installed, uh, uh, I quite like it the way it is, because it shows really, okay, that's the limit of, uh, of the track. 
if you go more, you break, damage the cars, and, and that's the limit, basically. Last year, you were hoping to get a, get another GT3 drive um, in the Blancpain series as it was then, and when that fell through, you ended up doing quite a bit of um, driver coaching with, with Porsche and the Red Bull ring. What are the, the kind of the common mistakes that, that, that you see with, with people that are, are coming there that you're coaching that, um, as Alex said earlier, it's one of those circuits that people look at and on a map it looks quite simple, but what are the really common mistakes that people make there? Uh, basically, it's just they're going in uh, too deep into the corners. So, uh, you know, you have to maximi maximize your exit. Uh, the after the corner is always a long straight. So, uh, you know, you have to, have to hit your braking point perfectly get that apex perfectly and then make sure you have a really good accent. And most of the time people just wanting too much, going too hot into the corners and, uh, and uh, just fuck up the exit basically and, and have a, have a bad, uh, bad one on the, on the next straight. And that's the same in, uh, in, in formula one. I mean, you have that, you have to, uh, to hit that apex in turn one, turn two, turn three, just perfectly. Otherwise you lose uh, a lot of time uh, all the way up the long straights. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because the getting rid of all the gravel and replacing it with the tarmac kind of can almost lull drivers into that false sense of security that it doesn't really matter if you run wide. But as you say, it, it, it's that it's that accuracy that I think is all the more important here because it is quite a short lap. Exactly, it's a very short lap. There's not that many corners that you can make a difference. So usually, all the cars and all the drivers are very close together. So it's all in the details and, uh, and uh, you have to maximize, uh, you know, really every tense and, and, and hit every uh, apex perfectly. And as you said, with, uh, with the, the new track styles that we have since years now with all these big runoff areas, which is great for safety, but it also means uh, that, you know, I mean, that there's no real limit uh, at, at the exit of the corners. And even if you make a mistake, it's not dangerous so basically you don't uh, uh, it's, it's harder for uh, uh, to make a difference for the good drivers between, between the bad drivers I mean that's not the case in Formula 1 because they're all very very good at the top but in uh, for example in GT3 racing where you have pros and amateurs uh, uh, for the amateurs it's much easier if they have a track with a lot of runoff because they're not scared to crash the cars there that's interesting. That's an interesting point you mentioned there, Christian. It's actually I'm going to throw back to an earlier episode of the Race of My Life podcast that we recorded, uh, talking about Jackie Stewart and his his choice for his Race of My Life. And I do urge any listeners of the Autosport podcast that haven't checked that out to go and uh, go and have a listen to the Race of My Life series. Uh, but it's interesting. He said talking about Monza, it was really satisfying to get a win there because the other drivers who perhaps weren't quite so good, the gap, you know, the gaps were the gaps were smaller because there were fewer corners. It was mostly straight, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So how satisfying is it when you know that you've done just that extra bit at a track like the Red Bull Ring, perhaps Monza as well, you know, fewer corners, shorter lap, just to just to take you clear of the opposition. Um, yes, it's, it's, a, it's a really good feeling if you get that perfect lap out. And uh, to get that perfect lap, uh, lap out at, uh, at Red Bull Ring is probably even more difficult because you have, uh, in reality, seven corners that you have to hit perfectly. And if you make one mistake, obviously it's a, it's a, uh, you lose more time than, for example, Spa. You know, you have whatever, 16 or 18 corners. You have still 17 corners to make up that, that, that mistake you did. And that's, uh, you, can't, uh, you don't have that at the Rapid Ring basis. Absolutely. Well, James and I both mentioned at the start how much we enjoyed visiting the track. And I said, like, honestly, such a such a beautiful location. Like, I almost didn't I almost didn't expect it when I first turned up and you come through, you know, you, you maybe you go up. I remember walking up to turn one and looking through because I was I was covering uh, Formula Two and GP3 at the time. And I think so I went from there to the support paddock and then you can just see the hill rising up and the trees and sort of the mountains beyond. It's absolutely beautiful. But it's an interesting, really interesting place uh, where the Formula One season is starting. Obviously, as I said, we'll have had the first race by the time you're listening to this podcast. But because obviously we've had the, the terrible delays with the coronavirus and the, and the terrible situation around the world in terms of uh, sport as well. It's obviously it's rolled up so many events and now we are finally getting going in Austria. But it's a it's a really interesting place to have started in Austria. Obviously, very fortunate, very wonderful that compared to other European countries, other nations around the world, the impact hasn't been quite so severe, which is fantastic. But in terms of the Red Bull Ring, 
it's the location that's actually been really, really key to getting the F1 season started. As I said, because Red Bull owns the track, I know they own a number of hotels and properties around there as well. And the fact that it's it's really quite remote, it's, you know, it's a long drive from Vienna and, and from even from Graz, which is, the, which is the nearest city. So what can you tell us about, about the location, about Spielberg? What's it like in, in Austria there? Yeah, it's uh, quite a remote place, actually. If uh, there wouldn't be the racetrack and... Uh, uh, and all the hotels that comes with the racetrack, it's, uh, it not, it's not much happening. Uh, it's a beautiful valley uh, surrounded by, uh, by mountains and, uh, and, and forests. And you, if you drive there, you don't expect a racetrack, to be honest. So uh, I think for, for a lot of people coming from other countries, uh, it, it's, it must be even a nicer impression than, than for me as I'm Austrian. I'm, I'm used to this, uh, to this landscape. And uh, for the, I think for for for, a, for the whole country for Austria, I mean it's 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 great that we have such a great racetrack, and and thanks to Red Bull and, and Dietrich Mateschitz who invested a lot of money in um, you know rebuilding the whole the whole track. I mean the facilities that we have at the Red Bull Ring is just uh, top of the top, I have to say, and uh, and also the show that he puts uh, uh, that we have around the Grand Prix. There's so much so much more happening than just the racing. For the fans, it's uh, for the fans. It's always been a really great race weekend. Absolutely, I think um, my impression of it where you suddenly you suddenly hit all the traffic queues. Obviously, sadly, not a factor this year with all the spectators that are sadly absent from the race. But yeah, then you know you're at a racetrack because you're like, oh right, okay, here I go. I'm queuing for the traffic to get in. This must be the must be the right place. Um, weather can also be a factor as well. I think maybe we're going to see some 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 of the racing in, in in the first two races get impacted by that. What's it like driving the Red Bull Ring in the rain? Um, it is. If you've done that, I don't know. Have you ever uh, done that? So that's probably a better question. I have to remember. Uh, I can't remember actually, but it's uh, the asphalt they're having there. It's this high performance grip asphalt, and, and even in uh, in the rain, it has quite a lot of grip. So it's uh, it's not a big problem. Uh, the only thing is you you always have these long straights, of course, and and the spray might be an issue. Uh, uh, if you go from turn one to two, obviously it's not a a dead straight line goes a little bit to the right and then back up to the left. And if you're right behind the car, it's sometimes tricky to see uh, where to go. But anyway, uh, you still uh, have eyes. You can look to the left or to the right. You follow the white lines and, uh, and you're fine. Absolutely. Well, it's a, it's a really interesting time to talk about Red Bull in particular because I, I was writing for uh, Autosport magazine, which is out last week. Um, about about how key that they are for this Formula One season because Ferrari have come out and said, look, we think we're behind, we're in third place. So it's probably, it's almost up to Red Bull to take the fight to Mercedes. And it's been a few years since they won their title. They've had some, you know, he's had some really good cars. Perhaps, you know, obviously the, the engine factor and reliability has really impacted them uh, in the last few years. But they look like they're really gelling together really nicely with Honda now. But I just wanted to ask you, as, as you know, you drive, for, you drive for Red Bull when it first joined F1. It took over the Jaguar team where you've been racing in 2004. What was it like back then, and and have you have you how have you watched it? Sort of has it transformed? Is it is it much the same? What's what's it been like watching that? Um, I think for sure it has transformed uh, massively. Was uh, the Red Bull bought uh, bought it off from from Jaguar, and I think it was it, it felt like a little bit of a of, of a slow start. Let's, let's say the first three four years until the team got really competitive, but. To build, uh, you know, a top team, it takes time. Uh, also, just to get the right people together, and uh, we had a quite a good year uh, in, in 2005. Uh, it was actually the old Jaguar car, or designed by Jaguar still. So we had a very good uh, start with Red Bull Racing, but then the second year got more difficult. But uh, I think th the way the team has evolved, it has changed uh, uh, very much. And, uh, you know, I'm still following it very closely. First of all, it's the team that I raced with. And uh, it's, it's an Austrian team or owned by, by, by Red Bull. So we follow it very closely. And obviously, um, I'm hoping that they get back to the top. It has been a few difficult years for them now. They're getting closer and closer. And I think this year, they could have, I have a feeling they have, could have a real good chance uh, to fight for, for, for the championship. They start off with Red Bull Ring. The last two years, they have been very successful there. So they have twice the chance to score good points there. 
and obviously it's a very short season so uh the less mistakes you make uh, uh, the better the outcome will, will be probably and i also think the car will change a lot from from what we've seen in winter testing to now and now i also wanted to ask you quite a specific question christian about austrians and formula one i remember talking to one of my colleagues he wrote a feature a couple of, a couple of years ago about just how many austrians are at the top and are in really influential positions in formula one so you've got toto wolf at mercedes obviously you had the late nicky lounder there as well before he sadly died you've got helmet marco at red bull gerhard berger's previously been involved was he running the dtm at the moment and alex verts at the gpda that's that's a lot i mean like just a, a lot of people from one country in some in really senior positions it's, it's absolutely fascinating to see is there any because because of course it's just in, you know not a huge not a huge population austria but it's got a massive influence on formula one why is that do you think yes i was also wondering uh, that myself uh, very often because there are a lot of people austrian people in formula one and uh, also in catering for example or or franz toast in uh, at, at uh, alpha tauri we also call Günther Steiner. Okay, he's he's Italian, but he's from uh, from the northern part of Italy. We we call him as Austrian as well. <laughs> so Haas has an uh, an Austrian uh, team principal there as well. And I think a lot of it comes from I think from time Jochen Rind, Niki Lauda. I mean, Formula One is was and still is very very popular in, in Austria, and uh, we have a huge fan base and people follow it. And and if I think if a lot of people follow Formula One, you know, you get fan from a, from a, from a small age. And by being a fan, maybe you want to, you know, your dream is to somehow work in Formula One. doesn't have to be a race car driver. It could, it could also be different routes. And I think a lot of it comes yeah, from the history from, uh, from Rind and Lauda that bit that Formula One is so deep in, in, the, in, the, in the Austrian roots, basically. It's time to talk about your race of my life. I'm really excited to listen to, to, to hear this because this is a, it's actually the second time, basically, just to give you a little bit of history and also for the listeners of the Autosport podcast, perhaps haven't checked out the race of my life before. Basically, it's a feature that ran in Autosport magazine uh, on several iterations over the years. It started out sort of in the 80s, brought back again in the 2000s, and now we're sort of bringing it into its almost third generation, as it were. It's the 2003 Formula 3 Masters at Zanvor. It's the pick you've done for your race of my life. What can you tell us about that race and why was it so special? Why was it so special? I mean, the Formula 3 Marlboro Masters, if you're in junior categories, back then it was probably the biggest race uh, that you could, uh, could have entered. You have all the national Formula 3 championships coming together uh, to one event. And uh, if you just read uh, the names uh, of drivers who won that race previously, it's just uh, phenomenal. And... Uh, the thing was, I came there to the Formula 3 Marlboro Masters, didn't expect anything. It was my first year in, first year in Formula 3, and the plan was always, you know, first year is a learning year, second year you go for the championship. But then, uh, you know, the beginning of the season went very well in the Euro Series already, and, uh, you know, fighting for the tops, uh, top positions, uh, had a win as well. And anyway, going to the Marlboro Masters, I didn't expect to be a front runner. And after qualifying, I qualified first in my group. So that means second on the grid. Nelson Piquet Jr. was, uh, was, uh, was on pole position. I had a really good start off the line, uh, went into the lead. And, and Sanford is a track you can make the car wide. And I thought, look, I make my car as wide as possible. Nelson Piquet, he won't be able to overtake me. Also, he had a really good engine from, from Honda in that car. That was probably it sounded different than all the other cars and then and it felt like that on the in the mirrors as well but i had a really good pace and uh, and i managed to stay in front of him uh, all the way through even after the safety car i managed to uh, to get back into my rhythm and uh, and won the race by by three tenths and and i mean that that race was just a, a breakthrough uh, in my career basically there were a few really strong names in that entry list just to read a couple of them um, Olivier Pilar was a second year driver, your Formula BMW rival from 2001, Timo Glock was in his second year of F3, um, your teammate Marcus Finkelhock also had a year of F3 under his belt and there was the, the British Championship leader Jamie Green there as well and Ryan Briscoe who'd been dominating the, the Euro Series up to that point. Um, what were you kind of realistically expecting at that point because um, 
you know, Mooka Motorsport, your team, hadn't actually entered the Masters the previous year. Um, but when they had gone to Zandvoort in German F3, their best result had been an eighth place. Um, so it wasn't like the team had kind of really shone there in, in recent years. Um, what do you, what were you kind of expecting going in and, and why do you think it turned out as well as it did? Um, well, going into that race, uh, from the team point of view, let's say the number one driver was Markus Winkelhoff. He was in his second year. Uh, he had experience on this racetrack. And uh, for me, it was, if I get a top 10 uh, finish at that race, this would be mega. And, and that, that's how I went in. I didn't, have, I didn't feel any pressure at all. Uh, obviously, it was my first year. There was a lot of drivers who were in their second year already. And uh, it just, I think I just like to track a lot. It's, it's, it's such a nice flowing racetrack. It suits perfectly the Formula 3 cars. Uh, you know, you can, you can play with the aero of the cars and I quite liked high speed corners and, and I was just immediately up to speed and, uh, in the free practices I thought, okay, I'm, I'm up there at the front, but maybe the others, you know, they didn't put new tires on or they're still playing, but then came qualifying and, uh, and, uh, you know, I finished first in my, uh, in my, uh, qualifying group. It was just amazing. Having said that also. I think we had a uh, very good support from Mercedes as well. Uh, Mercedes was uh, the second year in Formula 3 with their engines. And uh, they were also working uh, very well. And uh, we had good support from them. Uh, also from, from the engineering uh, uh, point of view, uh, with, uh, uh, with their experience from DTM. So it just all worked nice, nicely together. It's interesting you raised there about the Mercedes engines because in the previous years the Masters had kind of been dominated by Honda and Renault uh, engines and that was the, the very first time that a Mercedes engine won one of the Grand Slam um, Formula 3 races which is, is interesting in itself. Um, I wanted to ask you about the tyres Christian because uh, as I understand it the, the tyres, the Kumo tyres that were produced for that event were slightly different to the regular tyres that you ran in the Euro series, um, just to give the, the British teams a, a chance to kind of be on a level playing field. Um, but, but how different were they? And, and were the tyres something that you really got on well with? Um, yes, I think that was a little bit of a benefit for the uh, Euro series teams. Uh, we ran with the Kumo tyres and they, they weren't too different, to be honest. And uh, we, we could run the same uh, uh, setup that we, we usually run. So we didn't have to go crazy different, uh, different route. So I think from that point of view, from the tires wise, there was a, a slight advantage from the Euro Series teams. Yeah. And you mentioned before about qualifying. Um, Zanvo obviously is, a, is quite a tricky track to overtake on um, with so many fast corners and not too many overtaking points other really than, than turn one. Was that something that you had in mind going into qualifying that so long as you could be near the front end of the grid for the race, you could kind of defend from there. So it was more about setting up a car for one lap rather than a race distance. My strongest point was, was qualifying. Even the, the previous races like Manicura had my first uh, pole position in the Euro series and what I did, most of the others, they went out at the beginning of the session, they ran into traffic and uh, didn't time their, their peak of, uh, of the tires well. Where I usually waited, I, was, uh, I could handle my, my nerves very well. I usually waited 10 minutes until the first guys came in uh, to put another set of tires on or change something on the car. When the track was free, I went out for one flying lap and hammered that one. And I was really, I was really on it. I could really uh, do that very well. And I did the same in uh, in Sandford, and it just worked out perfectly. I had a very short run, uh, did my time, uh, positioned the car uh, at the front, and that was it. I think that year, that that strength that I had in me to do that uh, that one fast qualifying lap was uh, uh, was a big benefit because in Formula Three the cars are very equal. If you if you're starting P10, you're stuck in traffic. It's very hard to overtake. Qualifying is everything. You have to position it at the front, yes. Clearly, Zandvoort, Christian, was a track that you did get on well with because you had pole position for both of the Euro Series races later in the year as well. So was it just a track that you particularly got on well with more than any others? 
Um, I think I got on with it very well. Yes, I really, I really liked it. Uh, as I said, it's a really fast flowing circuit. It, it suits perfectly a Formula Three cars. Uh, and yes, I, I really liked that track. And uh, as you mentioned later on uh, in the Euro Series races, I had pulled twice again, and I just loved it. Yeah, and and it, it, usually it helps if you really like a track and it everything goes well for you. You also perform better. Um, I think it was a bit of a breakthrough in my career, for sure. Uh, right after the race, uh, Norbert Haug called me, for example, uh, from Mercedes, because uh, not many know, but that, at that year, I was not only a Red Bull junior driver, I was also a Mercedes junior driver. So the budget for my season came 50% from Red Bull, 50% from, from Mercedes. And uh, obviously, Helmut called me. So, you know, I noticed, okay, this, this race is, uh, you know, might have a big impact. Uh, a lot of people were watching it. Also, Formula One teams usually watch how the juniors doing in that race. And to be honest, after that, uh, the the Euro Series it was just halfway through the season. Uh, there was still a, a big chunk of uh, of Euro Series ahead of us. And uh, but uh, but I won races afterwards, and I finished second in the championship. And it was a more a bit of a dilemma because. Uh, Doing another another year of Formula Three uh, was probably uh, a bit risky because uh, I finished already second, won the Marlboro Masters. It could go there's a high chance it could go wrong as the the year after if not everything works together as perfectly. And the other thing was Formula Three Thousand at that time was not the strongest championship. There was only one team that was Arden who who won all the races. And those seats were, were full with another Red Bull Junior drivers, uh, with, uh, with Tony Liuzzi. And I think it was Robert Dombros the, the, the year after who went there. So it was a bit of a difficult uh, situation for me where to go. Should I stay another year, another year in Formula 3, Formula 3000? Or are they opening up uh, uh, possibilities in Formula 1, which in the end did. Do you think you would have made it to Formula 1 without the Masters win? Um, I don't think so because it, uh, yeah, it brought a lot of, of attention uh, to myself. Uh, you could clearly see a lot of people are watching that race uh, from the motorsport industries, and uh, yeah, pretty much quickly afterwards there were talks, even with some talks with Jordan, and then obviously also with uh, with Jaguar, where I then got uh, the test at, uh, at the end of the year. Yeah. I guess from a confidence perspective as well, Christian, you know, having gone into it thinking that, oh, I don't know, you know, if I can get a top 10, a top six, then that'd be, that'd be a good result. To actually come away from it having beaten everybody. Um, yeah, that must have been huge for you going forward in terms of self-belief to think, I can do this at the top level. Absolutely. And, and self-belief, it's, it's such a big factor in motorsport. It's... Uh, you know, there's a lot of good drivers. In the end, it's uh, to make the difference. It's a mind game, and uh, the mental strength is so important. So, if you win such a big race, it gives you such a big confidence boost. And I felt that straight the races afterwards, I was, uh, I, w I had so much self belief, and uh, I, I knew I could do it. And uh, it just made uh, uh, from one race weekend to the other a, a different driver out of me. Let's move on to a couple of races that you selected didn't quite make the cut for your race in my life, which is always good. We like to have more more discussions to talk about. And the next one up is the 2008 Le Mans 24 Hours. Now, this was after your, uh, you know, your Red Bull years in Formula One, not quite the end of your time in Formula One when you came out to race for HRT. But it was, I mean, fair to say, a very dramatic race. We 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 know it at Autosport as probably the best Le Mans ever because our sports car guru Gary Watkins absolutely loves that race. And it was it was it was absolutely dramatic. One in the end by. Audi with Alan McNish, Ronaldo Cabello and Tom Christensen. But you were driving for Peugeot at the time. Didn't wasn't wasn't a totally smooth race from your point of view. But yeah, I mean, again, a bit of a general question to ask you to sum up a 24 hour race. But yeah, how did it go? Um, I mean, it went actually much better than than expected. Uh, it was my first attempt at Le Mans. And coming from uh, Formula One, you know, the drivers, you think you know everything <laughs> and you're the best. But then you come to Le Mans, driving in the night, uh, having a lot of different other cars on the racetrack, like slow cars, amateur drivers. 
there's so much going on in your head and uh, to, to be quick on the racetrack first of all but then also to have to have the race pace because managing the traffic is a is a big uh, a big part of uh, of Le Mans and that's where uh, for example Alan McNish or Tom Christensen they were so good in that I mean we with Peugeot we had uh, for sure that year probably the faster car than the, than the Audi but uh, but the way they managed the race was just uh, superb so we had to drive flat out basically and driving flat out in Le Mans is sometimes a mistake what i had to what i had to feel because we were uh i think we were even in in the lead my teammates were uh frank montani and ricardo zonta we were really quick and then in the one of my night stints i did a very bad move on a on a left car uh, i was just too aggressive i should have just waited another corner and nothing would have happened but anyway i dived in wanted to make that move and uh, had a contact and stuck in the, in the gravel for for more than a lap and uh, we lost that lap and uh, and basically the, the race win was gone and you know that mistake teach me so much for for the for the later years in endurance racing that sometimes you just have to be have to be calm and coming from formula one that was not uh, something that you have in mind because it's uh, one and a half uh, one and a half hours flat out races it was an interesting time in your career, obviously, Christian, because at the time you were testing for BMW Sauber, you weren't racing in Formula One. You obviously you were still match fit, but in terms of the actual recent racing experience, you maybe um, hadn't had so much. So, how tough was it? Not only just to learn endurance racing, but coming from a testing environment where, okay, you can say that to a degree there's some elements of similarity there because testing is all about consistency. And endurance racing is about consistency as well. But the the amount that is going on in each lap, as you said, with the with the traffic that you're having to pass, how tough was it to actually acclimatize back to racing in one of the most difficult environments in the world? Yeah, it was tough, but but then your racing racing instinct you you don't lose that that quickly. So 2007, I was a, a year out of uh, out of racing, uh, being test driver at Honda, and then. I was test driver at BMW 2.8 and they and uh, Mario Tyson allowed me to do the, the Peugeot program uh, because he was quite keen that uh, that I have races under my belt basically uh, not just being a test driver and yeah as I said the racing instinct you don't lose that quickly but what's new in Le Mans is or if you're the first time if you do the first time an endurance race it's just uh, you know managing that that traffic and uh, also realizing in this race there's not only professionals there's also amateur drivers and obviously they're racing at their speed uh, that they can they, they, that they can and they're at their own limits so sometimes they don't have the time to watch their mirrors so you have to think for them as well uh, so that that's something you have to you have to learn if you do the mistake once you probably learn it, learn it even faster I can see that you've got the, the Le Mans trophy behind you. Um, it's kind of distinctive amongst all the other trophies that you have. Um, how how was it just standing on that podium? Obviously, the, the atmosphere when the race finishes at Le Mans is, is unlike anything I've experienced anywhere else. Um, obviously, you weren't standing on the top step, but after 24 hours, I guess even a third place, your first attempt must have felt pretty special. Yes, it was a great achievement. Standing up on that podium in Le Mans is just—it's uh, just amazing. I mean, you, first of all, it's a—it's a very long week in Le Mans until you get the race, and then it's a bloody long race, twenty-four hours, and then to to stand on that podium after after such a you know long time on the racetrack, uh, very hard times in the car, it's just. Uh, uh, it's just a great release, basically. See all the fans uh, at the bottom, hundred thousand or whatever it is. It's 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 incredible. And what I liked so much about Le Mans is because before I was five years just on the Formula One races, and you're basically in this Formula One bubble, and you don't see anything. You don't see all, all uh, the other motorsport anymore. And and for me, Le Mans was just a little bit back to the roots again uh it felt um, it, it felt like raw motorsport 
the fans were closer uh, to, to the drivers and it just f felt more connected. Uh, and, and I just enjoyed that race so much. And what was the what was it like when the car was coming back? Obviously, you know you'd had your you'd had your off, but it you know weren't, certainly weren't out of the race. And obviously, you go on to secure a fantastic result with the first attempt. What were you thinking during those those the time as as you had as you guys came back through the field? Um, I mean, we lost we lost the lap there. I was still in the car, and I felt I felt terrible uh, because uh, it's not just I uh, I screw uh, I screw up my race. It's also I screw up the race of the other two teammates. So that's also a nice part of, uh, of endurance racing. You're, you're really one team, basically. Uh, you're three friends sharing a car, ideally. It only works that way, I guess. Yeah? And, uh, and you also feel like you let the, the other drivers down. But, uh, but we had a really good team spirit and we, we all pushed, uh, pushed like crazy to, to, uh, you know, to bring back the car up. And, and to finish on the podium was just... Uh, uh, was a great release for us uh, and uh, still a, a, a great achievement. I think it was also for Ricardo Zonta, the, the first podium in Le Mans. And I'm not sure about Montagny because he, he used to race there quite, a, quite often. Absolutely. Well, let's move on to your, your next race that you put forward as a possible race in my life candidate. It's So uh, we're going to jump back in time again. I like to I like to shake things up, move it around, not necessarily do it chronologically. It's the 2006 Monaco Grand Prix. Obviously, very famous race in Formula One history because of what happened in qualifying with Michael Schumacher in the Ferrari, parking it controversially and quite dodgily at Rascas. Uh, Fernando Alonso wins for Renault. It was the year of their great title battle, Schumacher's last uh, year at Ferrari. But it was also a, a historic moment for Red Bull because David Coulthard, your teammate, secured Red Bull's first F1 podium finish. But for you, actually another case of what might have been because you'd been running in front of Coulthard. It was quite an attritional race, that one. The lots, lots of uh, contenders for the win dropped out in Raikkonen and Weber. But you were ahead of Coulthard when you yourself had a mechanical failure. So yeah, how was the, the 2006 Monaco Grand Prix? How did that unfurl from your point of view? Um, the reason why I picked that race, obviously it had a DNF and uh, it didn't go anywhere. But uh, as you mentioned already, uh, it was the first uh, podium for Red Bull Racing uh, for, for David Coulthard. And in qualifying and, and free practices, uh, to be fair, uh, David Coulthard was, was clearly quicker than me. And uh, David uh, around Monaco was also always very special. He, he really likes that track and, and he, was, he was really mega good. But uh, the way the race went, uh, I was on a one-stop strategy. And uh, I was coming through the field, had a, had a late stop uh, and just made up a, a lot of positions during, the, during uh, my pit stop. Anyway, I, I ended up uh, right in front of, of David Coulthard at that time, position five. I had my stop later than him, fresher tires on the car. And, you know, in Monaco, it's very easy to make the car wide. So I thought, <laughs> I'm going to get the best re re result for, for Red Bull Racing there. But uh, I think it was like 20 laps to the end. All in a sudden, I, I got a gearbox problem and uh, had to retire the car. And uh, I, was, I was sure I could have stayed in, in front of David. What was uh, what we found out later uh, would have been uh, would have been a podium, and being a young driver uh, finishing on the podium in Monaco is just uh, you know it can can be a breakthrough in your career and uh, having a podium there uh, I think uh, the career my career could have uh, ended up uh, slightly different. Well, yeah, it's interesting, interesting to consider. I mean, like, what was Red Bull like at the time? Obviously, it had been in Formula One for it was its second season by that point. How much it had it developed? Adrian Newey coming on board, but perhaps hadn't had, he didn't go on to have the influence at, at, at that time that he did later on with the Red Bull design. So what, what was the team like at that, at that moment? The second year of Red Bull Racing 2.6 was very difficult. Um, we went to Ferrari engines. Adrian Newey came very late so basically didn't have uh, too much influence on on that car and it was just a, a car with a lot of trouble a lot of technical failures uh, a lot of dnfs we had it was only later than uh, 27 that was the first car uh, that was designed by adrian newey and you could immediately see that uh, that it's going to be a better one uh clearly so yeah 26 was difficult it was was not very reliable. It was uh, difficult to handle. 
I think that podium finish that we got there in, in Monaco was uh, just a, wouldn't say a lucky one because uh, uh, because uh, the way the team managed the race was uh, was really good and Monaco is just a special racetrack. Of course, that was only your second Monaco Grand Prix because although you made your Formula 1 debut in 2004, in 2005 you had the weird situation where you and Tony Liuzzi were sharing a, a, the second seat and you started the season, you had points in the first two races and then Liuzzi takes the car over for a few races, he does Monaco and you're kind of confined to the Friday role and then you come back in later and you're kind of doing every weekend thinking it might be your last race and them always saying Tony is coming back for the next race. So I guess the the whole, you know, 2004 you come in, you're, you've skipped Formula 3000 and you're kind of catching up. 2005 you've got that whole uncertainty hanging over you and then when 2006 comes around you must think, right, finally some some uh, some time to, to get down and, and get on with it but the Ferrari engine kind of keeps letting you down. Is, is it kind of a frustrating period in your career that you look back on and think a lot of these things were, you know, almost out of your control? Yes, it's a, yeah, it's indeed a very frustrating time of my, my career. Um, I mean, even though you, you made it to Formula One, um, I think 2004 uh, with Jaguar, I was, I was probably almost too, too young, uh, not from maybe the, the way to drive the car, but, uh, uh, from the mental mental side, it was uh, it was a, a a very hard learning curve for me. I was very lucky to have uh, Mark Weber as my teammate. He was very open. He's a real sportsman, and uh, I got most of the time a lot of help from him as well. So he was very open. That made, made that made my life uh, a lot easier. And uh, yeah, then two five uh, obviously it was very difficult with sharing the car with Vit Antonio Liuzzi. Uh, the positive thing, me and Tonio, we always kept a very good relationship. Uh, that made it easier for us. But it could have, uh, with another driver or another driver pair, it could end up also in a disaster. And uh, I mean, that idea to have two junior drivers sharing a car, it was not only the races, it was also in testing. We had half of the time than, than DC, for example as young drivers so it was just uh, it was uh, definitely not not good for us and also not good for the out uh, you know for the outcome or the, the point scoring of the second car well christian we're going to come we're going to sort of close come towards the end of the podcast but i know that james wanted to uh, wanted to throw an extra race into consideration so james why don't you introduce this one Sure thing. The the other one I was researching, Christian, when I was looking back over your career was China 2005. Um, I think it's your best result in Formula One, but that's not the main reason I picked it. Um, you finish P5. Um, you, you, you qualified, I think it was uh, 14th, and then you kind of make your way through the field and the, the team makes a good decision um, with strategy that helps you, uh, moves you up to, to fourth. But why I picked it was because you had the fourth fastest lap of the race behind only Raikkonen and the McLaren, which was the fastest car of 2005, and the two Renaults of Alonso and Giancarlo Fisichella. Um, and then there's Christian Kleen and the Red Bull in, in fourth fastest lap. Um, how, how, how kind of, we, we talk about in the, uh, the feeling of being in the zone in, in a race car. Is, is that one of those times when, you know, you were really just on it and getting the absolute most out of yourself and the car. Absolutely. And I think uh, most of 2005 I was. I really liked that car. Uh, the car was actually good. Uh, even at the beginning of the season, we scored uh, uh, very good points. I also managed to out-qualify DC uh, quite often. Uh, and I really felt in the zone with this car. And especially in China, last race of the year, uh, I, was, I was very comfortable. I had... Uh, my confidence back because I had a, a long stint in the car after sharing the car with, uh, with, with Tony Liuzzi. And uh, that race was, just went for me, basically. I remember there was uh, Rubens Barrichello who was holding up a whole pack of, uh, of cars uh, behind him. And uh, the team did a good uh, pit stop strategy that uh, kept me out on, out on the track, which, uh, which was definitely the better strategy. And uh, later on, the, the tires just came alive again. There was some graining on the tires, 
where everybody struggled with and you just had to drive through that graining the tire came alive again and uh, that's where the car was just uh, was just great to drive you only had one set of tires for the whole race so it was a kind of almost an anomaly looking back in in formula one's history but yeah it makes it all, all the more special i suppose that you're able to keep the tires alive to get that performance yeah absolutely yeah and I, I remember uh, I did a move again also on, on Felipe Massa. I think he was in P5. Oh, I was on P6. Uh, managed to overtake him. And uh, yeah, finally was the, the best result of, of my career. And I remember, I think it was P4 and P3. I think uh, Fisichella and Ralf Schumacher were ahead of me. And they were still in distance, so I could see them. And it was a weird feeling for me to finish a race but I could still see the cars that finished on the podium. It was a kind of, a, again, a, a boost for me. It was a, it was a great uh, race, a great result. And also that race uh, secured me uh, the, the race seat at Red Bull Racing the year after. It was uh, pretty much straight after the race. Uh, Didi Matisic called me, congratulated me. And I think that was a big help for, for the season after. Absolutely. Well, I always love hearing about a charging drive on a Race My Life podcast, whether that's the actual pick or just just hearing them. That's always things extra special, more spectacular. Well, guys, I think we're gonna we're gonna bring this podcast, this joint podcast, to an end. If you're listening on the Autosport podcast, I do urge you to go and check out the Race My Life podcast. Also, go to Autosport.com in a couple of weeks, where we'll be having that uh, the feature. We'll, we'll be putting it up all of Christian's words and dedicated art artwork and imagery of the 2003 Masters at Zandvoort. So, Christian, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's been absolutely wonderful uh, hearing. Your thoughts and your memories and uh, yeah thank you very much again thank you very much for having me it's a pleasure excellent and james thank you as well for coming on and i'm going to take this point to urge everyone to subscri- subscribe to your section of autosport.com autosport.com plus it's an area i know well it's my old job uh, so yes do do check out all our news features and analysis on autosport.com and autosport.com plus as well as motorsport.com prime so yeah james thank you as well for coming on the podcast and thank you to our producer martin lee for editing this episode setting everything up for us and thank you to you for listening music is 6am by trilo written by marcus simmons see soundcloud.com slash trilo music redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Social Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.